This is week number four of my sermon series called Peekaboo People. It's a series about people in the Bible who, for one reason or another, felt compelled to try to hide. And today we're going to look at a very intense moment in Peter's life. Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends and associates. But a very intense moment in his life when even he felt compelled to go into hiding. But before we get to that, let me just ask you a question. If you had a really important message that you wanted to get out to the world, how would you do it? And even as that uh, question rolls off my tongue, I'm sure you're thinking of all kinds of ideas. Maybe you would launch a big marketing campaign, maybe um, with a little green gecko that has an English accent. Maybe something like that would work. Or maybe you would hire a celebrity spokesperson. Or maybe you would launch a big website. All kinds of ideas out there. But you know, it doesn't have to be high-tech. Um, perhaps the most effective promotional tool going right now is a red baseball cap with four words printed across the front. And you might love that cap or you might hate that cap, but one thing is for sure, just about everybody in America knows that cap and what it stands for. Um, I didn't even have to tell you what those four words are. You know. But now here's the thing. We have a more important message to get out than anybody else. We as Christians. And we've been known to try all sorts of different promotional ideas. We've tried baseball caps and t-shirts and websites and, and all kinds of uh, campaigns. But for us, there is one promotional method that far outshines all the others. In fact, there's no other method that can even come close to this one in terms of effectiveness. And I'm talking about our behavior. The way we act. The way we talk. The things we say and do. Communicate our values to the world around us better than anything else ever could. My favorite poet, Edgar Guest, wrote these words. One good man teaches many. Men believe what they behold. One deed of kindness noticed is worth 40 that are told. Who stands with men of honor learns to hold his honor dear. For right living speaks a language which to everyone is clear. Friends, those words are so true. You may not be able to amaze the world with your knowledge or your intellect or your talent or your ability. You may not have the money to launch a big advertising campaign or a big website or whatever. But if you just live a life of honor and dignity, you will be a powerful witness for Christ. And the Bible makes this clear again and again and again. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, Let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Peter said, Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, that then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God. The Apostle Paul said, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Again and again and again, we're told in the Bible how important our behavior is. 
And that's what makes today's Bible story so heartbreaking. We find ourselves very near the end of Jesus' life on earth. He's having one last meal with his disciples, and he's explaining to them some of the things that are going to be happening. And with Peter, he gets very specific. I'll begin reading in Luke chapter 22 at verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon. This is when Peter was still being called Simon sometimes. He had both names. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. In other words, Jesus is saying to Peter, look, there's trouble coming. There's trouble in your future, and you're going to face a really difficult test. And he even suggests that Peter is not going to come through this test with flying colors. He says, when you have repented, indicating that he's going to mess up and there's going to be a need for him to repent at some point. Wouldn't that be unnerving? If the Lord said to you, listen, trouble's coming. It's going to be bad. And you're not going to go, you're not going to come through it very well. You're going to need to repent when it's all over. Wouldn't that be a terrible thing? I think it would for most of us, but it wasn't for Peter. He squared up his shoulders and said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even die with you. And wow, that was pretty boastful, but I think he really meant it. I think he was sincere. I think he really thought that he would be able to maintain his allegiance to Christ no matter what happened. (coughs) But as always, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And so he said to Peter in verse 34, Let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. There is a book, and you will hear it referenced every now and then, if you hear people talk about war. Like, for example, if you're watching cable news and you hear some pundits discussing a war somewhere in the world, I've heard this book referenced a number of times. It's called The Art of War. And it was written 2,500 years ago in China. And it is considered to be still to this day the definitive work on the subject of military strategy. And we know that warfare has changed over the years. Mostly the weaponry has changed. But the strategies of war have not changed. So in this book, which you can still buy in any bookstore, And by the way, that's pretty good if you can write a book and it's still in print 2,500 years later. Um, You can still buy it anywhere. Uh, In this book, there is a discussion of how to defeat an army that is inside a fortress that is thought to be impregnable. The book says that if the army inside the fortress believes that it is perfectly safe, the advantage automatically swings to the enemy outside the walls. Because if the army on the inside believes it is perfectly safe, it will relax. Which means there will probably be something it won't guard. There will be a precaution it won't take. There will be a possibility it won't think of. And that will be the thing the enemy outside the walls will exploit to gain the victory. And friends, this is essentially what we see here in this passage. Peter thought he was safe. 
He was full of self-confidence. He was resting easy. He didn't think really there was going to be a problem. No matter what happened, he thought he'd be able to come through it just fine. And I'm sure when he made these boasts, Satan smiled and licked his chops. And so I'm going to read from Luke 22, starting at verse 54, and let's see what happened. So they arrested Jesus and led him to the high priest's home, and Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, This man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, You must be one of them. No, man, I'm not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, This must be one of them because he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard, weeping bitterly. I don't know if Peter was here today. I think he would probably tell us that this was the worst moment of his entire life. And it's not my intent to make excuses for him because he really messed up. But I do want to say this. There are some temptations that only brave people will ever face. And by that I mean that people who always play it safe, people who always stay out of harm's way, you know, they're not going to be tested in the same way that courageous people are. And here, Peter shows himself to be pretty courageous. He followed along behind Jesus when he was taken away. He took a risk that his fellow disciples didn't take. Where were they? They were off hiding somewhere. And so even though, yes, Peter messed up right here, he did something very wrong, I think we at least need to give him a little credit for even being there. He was showing some courage. But here we come down to the crux of the matter, and this is really what the message is all about. This is a series about people who tried to hide, and that's what we see Peter doing here. Instead of letting his light shine, instead of being open about his faith and his allegiance to Christ, he tried to hide it. And we understand that he was scared. They had just arrested Jesus and hauled him off, and, and Peter was afraid that they might arrest him too. Probably every one of us would have been frightened about what would happen to us, just like Peter was. But the fact remains, as he stood around that fire, he went into hiding. And I want you to see what happened as a result. And friends, this is the most important part of the sermon. So please listen to what I'm about to say. Once he made that decision to hide his true identity as a follower of Christ, the moral framework that he had built his whole life upon began to crumble and collapse. Now, what do I mean by that? 
Well, right out of the gate, we see him telling a lie. Not one lie, not two lies, at least three lies that we're told about. And I'm pretty sure back when he was living and working and traveling with Jesus, he wasn't telling lies. We also learn in Matthew's account of the same incident that Peter cursed, that he embellished his lie with bad language, which is something else I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have been doing when he was living and working and traveling with Jesus. And so you see what's happening here. As soon as he decided to hide the fact that he was a follower of Christ, his morality began to disintegrate. Why? Well, because he was trying to seem authentic. He was claiming not to be a follower of Jesus, and so he felt compelled to act like a guy who was not a follower of Jesus. And this brings us to the critical point, the most important statement in the whole sermon. Here it is. Our tendency will always be to act like what we claim to be. Our tendency, for all of us, this is true of all of us, will always be to act like what we claim to be, which is why we need to be always open about our faith and our our relationship with Jesus Christ. The more open we are about our faith, the more incentive we will have to behave like people of faith. So what I want to do with the remainder of my time this morning is encourage you to be open about your faith. And the way I want to do that is by putting to rest some of your fears. Because I know that uh, a lot of us are afraid of what will happen if we're really open about our faith. If we're really open about our faith as we move about in the world, we're afraid that um, we'll experience expectations that we won't be able to live up to. And so I want to lay to rest some of those fears by sharing with you three things being open about your faith does not require of you. These are things that people are often afraid of, but you don't need to be afraid of them, okay? There are three of them. First of all, being open about your faith does not require you to be aggressive. Now, we've all met aggressive Christians, right? We've all met people who just are like right in our face with their faith. And there are people in this world who want you to know that they love the Lord and they want you to know it within the first five seconds you meet them. I was in the A boarding group of a South, uh, Southwest Airlines flight one time. And if you don't fly Southwest, what that means is you get to board kind of at the beginning of the line, at the front of the line. So mostly you get on and there's lots of empty seats and then other people come on after you and pick their seat. It's open seating, so you can sit wherever you want. So I did what every Southwest A-group flyer does. I got on and picked a seat and then started praying that somebody really weird would not sit down beside me. (laughs) And you know if you've done this, you know how it works. You sit down in your seat and you watch the other passengers getting on the plane and you kind of rate them as they go by. It's like, oh, no, I don't want that person. Oh, she's kind of nice looking. Maybe she would, you know. And I think most guys, you know, that you know, we're hoping for a supermodel to come in and sit down beside us. I've reached the point in my life where that doesn't really mean that much to me anymore. I'm just hoping for somebody that doesn't have body odor and bad breath. But that day, someone with body odor and bad breath would have been an improvement. Because what I got 
sitting down beside me was Mr. Super Christian. Guy about 26, 27 years old, maybe. He's wearing his Christian t-shirt. Got a backpack. Got a great big old dog-eared Bible he's carrying with him. He plops down in the seat next to me and he turns to me and says, Praise the Lord, brother. And I'm thinking, oh no, here we go. (laughs) The best way I can describe this guy is to tell you he's like a perfect blend of like the most annoying salesperson you've ever met and Joel Osteen. If you could just blend those two people together, that's who this guy was. And I could tell that he felt like God had put him in that seat to save my soul that I was his own personal mission field for the next two hours. And so I quickly told him that I was a Christian, that I was a believer too, thinking that might uh, compel him to back off a little bit. Oh, no. Because now we have a reason to bond. We have a common faith. And we're going to spend the next two hours sharing details of our spiritual journey. Friends, You can be open about your faith without making people want to kill you. (laughs) You can be open about your faith without making people want to throw you out of an airplane at 30,000 feet. You can be open about your faith without making other people want to run and hide when you walk into a room. You can be open about your faith while still being a normal, friendly, likable human being. You do not have to be aggressive. You do not have to annoy people. You do not have to get in their face and cram your faith down their throat. Being open about your faith does not require you to be aggressive. Secondly, being open about your faith does not require you to be an expert theologian. I was listening to a preacher one time, and and he said that when he was young in the ministry, there were three words he felt like he could never say. But he didn't say what those three words are, were right away. And so I'm listening, and I'm thinking, what three words could he be talking about? And I'm thinking maybe swear words or slang words or, or something like that. But it turns out that the three words he felt he could never say as a young preacher were, I don't know. He said he felt pressure. In fact, he felt an obligation to be able to answer the questions that his people asked him, questions about God and theology and such. And he said he felt like a failure. If anybody ever asked him a question about God and he couldn't answer it, if he had to say, I don't know. And I think there might be a little of that fear in all of us. You know, I don't think you have to be a preacher to experience this fear. That if you're really open about your faith, maybe one of your coworkers will ask you a question about God or the Bible and you won't be able to answer it and you'll be embarrassed. When I was working with Mandy Harvey on her memoir, she told me about the time she was in a class in high school and a theological question came up in the class discussion. It wasn't a theology class, but it was a theological question that came up in the discussion and the teacher was not a Christian and didn't know anything about the Bible. And so she said, well, she said, let's ask Mandy. She's a Christian. She goes to church. Her dad's a preacher. Let's ask her. And Mandy said, every person in the room turned and looked at her. 
And she did not know the answer to the question. And she was embarrassed. And she said, Mark, I didn't really have the option of keeping my faith a secret because everybody knew I went to church and everybody knew my dad was a preacher. But she said, if I had had the option, she said, I would have been tempted to keep quiet about my faith, to avoid embarrassing moments like that. When people look at you and they think, well, you're a Christian. You're supposed to know these things. But here's the thing, friends. You don't need to have all the answers to be an awesome witness for Christ. Nobody has all the answers. Nobody has even half of the answers. You can name the smartest theologian in the world. And I promise you, he only has a few answers. Most of what there is to know about God is not only unknown, it's unknowable us. Now, we know what we need to know because God has given us the Bible, but there are a million questions about God and eternity and, and theology that no one knows the answer to. Your challenge as a Christian is not to worry about all those questions you don't know the answer to. Your challenge as a Christian is just to worry about what you do know. You may remember that when Jesus sent people out to witness for him, he did not say to them, now I want you to get out there and answer everybody's theological questions. That's not what he said. You remember what he said? In Mark 5.19, he said, tell them everything the Lord has done for you. Now you can handle that, right? You can tell people what the Lord has done for you. Don't worry about all those theological questions that really nobody can answer. Being open about your faith does not require you to be an expert theologian. Finally, being open about your faith does not require you to be perfect. When I was a young minister and just getting started, this is where I felt the most pressure. I felt scrutinized. I felt like there were people watching every move I made, just waiting for me to mess up so they could criticize me. And I think one of the reasons I felt this way is because I happened to be serving a church at that time that was pretty critical. There were some self-righteous people in that church, and they made it hard on everybody, especially a young minister. I'll never forget the time I was ministering in that church. And let me just put this into perspective for you. Uh, this is 40-some years ago that I'm telling you about right now. Uh, Marilyn and I were about Jack and Taylor's age. We were about 24, maybe, 25. I was the young preacher of this church where just about everybody in the whole church was older than me, and most people in the church were 20 years or more older than me. Um, and I was it was my first full-time ministry, and I was you know, trying to kind of feel my way along. I was not long out of college, and I pretty much didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I was trying to learn, and I was trying to do a decent job. So Marilyn and I went to church one morning, and we walked in the door, and there just inside the door stood one of the grand older ladies of the church, one of the matriarchs of the church. And we saw her standing there, and we said good morning to her, and she said good morning to us. And then she kind of stepped back like this, and she looked at my wife. 
And she looked her up and down, and you could just see her eyes going up and down. And then she said to my wife, Well, it's nice to see you and your knees at church this morning. And we took that to mean that she thought my wife's dress was too short. And she turned and walked away. And, and I'm going to guess that she never gave that another thought, gave that moment another thought the rest of her life. We've been thinking about it and talking about it for 40 years. We never forgot that moment because it was highly significant. And that lady did not understand what she did to us that day. I'm sure she walked away and never thought of it again. Maybe she thought she was being funny. It profoundly impacted us. To the point that when we would go shopping and if my wife wanted to buy some clothes, we would worry ourselves to death about necklines and hemlines and is this appropriate? And if we buy this and if you wear this, is somebody going to criticize? We still talk about it today. Sometimes I say to my wife, it's nice to see you in your knees today. <laughs> it doesn't work for a preacher. But if you're not a preacher, the way you can avoid all of this self-righteous criticism and judgment from other people, just don't tell them you're a Just keep your faith to yourself. Don't let people know. And then they won't scrutinize you and criticize you that way. That's one way you can handle this situation. But I would suggest that you handle it a different way. I would suggest that you handle it the way Jesus handled it. You know how Jesus handled it? He understood that there are people like that everywhere. Self-righteous, judgmental people who can find something wrong with everything. He encountered those people all the time. They were always on his case about something. They didn't like the way he ate. They didn't like what he did on the Sabbath. Everything he did, they found a way to criticize it. You know how he handled those people? He ignored them. He paid no attention to them. He lived his life and he didn't care what they thought. That's what we need to do. Let me tell you, it's been 40 years since that comment I just told you about. I'm still working on this. Because I'm just like you. I don't like to be criticized. It hurts. But I'm getting better at it. And I can handle a whole lot more criticism now than I could then. But this is one thing that scares people when they start thinking about being open about their faith. They say, well, if I let people know that I'm a Christian, that I love Jesus, then they're going to put me under a microscope and they're going to criticize everything I do. If I, if I say something wrong or if I do something wrong, everybody's going to criticize me. Pay no attention to them. They're going to do what they do. 
Leave them in God's hands. Let Him deal with them. You just live your life for Christ and let your light shine. You do not have to be perfect to be open about your faith. As I wrap this up, I want to point out something the Apostle Paul said to his protege, the young preacher Timothy. He said, fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have confessed so well before many witnesses. Paul understood that there is incentive that comes with being open about your faith. And so he said, Timothy, hey, don't forget, you profess your faith in front of a lot of people. And that's why here at Poinciana Christian Church, when somebody comes forward to be baptized or when somebody wants to place their membership in our church, they usually stand right down here and we ask them, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and your Savior? And we want them to say it out loud in front of a room full of people because there is incentive in that. When you make that claim standing before people, then it puts pressure on you to back it up with the right lifestyle. Because whether we're talking about Peter or Timothy or you or me, the bottom line is always the same. Our tendency will always be to act like what we claim to be. Let's stand. Father in heaven, we understand that living in a world that is so hostile to you means that we are going to face a lot of pressure. Pressure that comes from expectations that are unreasonable sometimes and criticisms that are sometimes unfair. Lord, help us not to make the mistake of trying to avoid all this pressure by hiding our faith or our allegiance to you. Give us the courage to openly embrace our identity in your Son, even if it means that we might have to face some uncomfortable moments Help us to believe that it's when we are open and faithful and true that we will find our greatest joy. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, that's what we want for you more than anything else. And so we take this moment at the end of our service and encourage you to think about where you stand with the Lord and where you need to go from here. Now, many of you already have a personal relationship with Him, and that's wonderful. Some of you don't. Maybe you've never accepted Christ. We want you to do that. I mean, that's why we're here, is to encourage people to come to Christ. And what that means for you, if you've never done it before, is, is you place your faith and your trust in Him, and Him alone. And then you obey what He's asked you to do, and He's, he's going to ask you to uh, repent of your sin and confess Him before men. He's going to ask you to be baptized. And I realize those are some religious words that maybe you might not be familiar with if you're brand new in church. And if that's the case, Mike or I would be happy at any time to sit down with you and show you what the Bible says so you can understand what it means to accept Jesus and, and what that would mean for you in your particular situation. So please give us a call if you'd like to talk about it. But we're going to sing this song, and it's going to be just your moment here to reflect, to think, to look inside your own heart, see where you are with God and where you need to go from here. And hopefully you can make a decision today that you can walk out of this building 
and start on a better track. Maybe get closer to him than you've ever been before.